This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Radar, our monthly Nextworks podcast. We changed the concept a little bit. This is the first episode of this year. And as you know, the past two years, we were here with Peter and Pascal, who are also here this morning. Hi, guys. Morning. Good morning. And with Laurence and Julie, but as we told you, Laurence is looking for new opportunities, so she's no longer part of our radar team. And Julie is also looking for other opportunities. Um, so we thought, okay, let's see how we can change this concept. And we decided to work with new guests and with monthly guests that will join Pascal and me on our podcast. Uh, Julie will come back a few times a year, so she's not gone, you will hear her again. But we wanted to add some different voices to the debate and see if we could bring some extra expertise to the table. And we thought that that could bring some extra value for all of you. So let us know what you think. But we're super excited about this new concept. And we're very happy with our first special guest, which is Elke Gerards, who is joining us today. Hi, Elke. Hello, good morning, everyone. We're super happy, super excited that Elke is here. She's a doctor in psychology. She's the CEO and founder of Better Minds at Work. And she's super well known as a keynote speaker and author of four international bestsellers. She's doing keynotes around the world. And her focus is on trying to help companies to increase the mental strength of their employees, to increase the positive energy, and by doing so, improving the productivity of her clients. So that sounds super impressive, Alke. And we would love to kick off this podcast with your insights, uh, your specialty is focusing on the combination of artificial intelligence and real authentic human intelligence. Mm -hmm. What's your point of view there? Yes, I call it our own human AI, our authentic intelligence. More and more as AI is uh, entering our society, there is a pressure for humans to step up and be sustainable in the way we work and the way we live. And I believe that more than ever, we have to focus on what makes us authentic, what makes us unique as human beings. And of course, also create this superpower of humans by pairing it with uh, artificial intelligence. And I firmly believe that we have to invest as humans, but also as companies in what makes us unique. For instance, our ability for critical thinking to put things in perspective and to make bold decisions, but also our ability to focus on what really matters. Um, the computer can say no because we programmed him to do that, but we human beings can focus on what's really important for us. But you see more and more our focus is gone in this world of distraction and it's very vital that we will improve our focus again. But another is, of course, our ability to create connections. Computers can make networks, but we can create relationships, bonds that last for our lifetime. And also there, I believe that we now more than ever have to invest in connections with other people around us, but also, again, feeling what it is that our purpose is and um, 
making decisions based on that purpose. Yeah, I, I like those ideas. You know, it's the changing skill set, the changing needs as humans. And I would like to get your thoughts on something. I wrote a book in 2014 that is called When Digital Becomes Human, where I talk about the combination in customer experience of using strengths of machines versus strengths of humans. And I made this chapter where I predicted what the human skills would be when AI really popped up. And I worked with three. Um, it was passion, creativity, and empathy. Mm -hmm. But if I look today, I'm in serious doubt about two of those three. Uh, if you look at empathy, everyone knows that study with those doctors, right? Where they ask patients to compare a doctor with ChatGPT, and 79% of the people preferred the machine over the doctor in terms of quality and in terms of empathy. So the question is, is empathy one of those new skills? Creativity? We always thought that we are the creative people, but in November I was in New York. I went to MoMA where you had that AI exhibition mm -hmm. and everyone was pulled to the AI piece of art because it was constantly evolving. It was super, super cool to see. Of course, it was based on human creativity because, you know, as data, they used all the paintings that they have at MoMA. So you could say, all right, it's been biased by human creativity, but still, will we win in creativity? Uh, if I look at those three that I formulated back in 2014. Passion seems like the only one who survived that. I hear you're adding critical thinking, connection, focus to that. Mm -hmm. What's your point of view about the two that I removed or I'm about to remove from that model? Do you agree or do you disagree? Well, for sure. A, a few years ago, I would have also said that creativity is something really unique to us human beings. And of course, it's extremely attractive to visit the MoMA and see what's happening uh, with uh, the, the art that AI is creating. But as you say, there's also humans behind it and the creativity uh, of humans in the past. And probably if we would look to the near future, uh, I would assume that it's the connection of the creativity of the human beings and the AI that can create really interesting uh, creativity altogether. So I don't think that we shouldn't invest in creativity anymore. On the opposite, actually, uh, on moments that we humans let our mind wander, that we have time to unfocus away from all the stimuli, then the most beautiful ideas pop up. And if you link it to passion, it's only that you feel the passion on those moments that you let your mind wander. It's not when you are scrolling on the internet, right? It's on the moments that you take time for introspection, looking at what our mind is thinking instead of looking at what many others are thinking by scrolling. I'm convinced that we should invest in our own creativity, but see how we can combine it with creativity of AI. Mm -hmm. When you look at empathy, yes, those studies are, of course, there, but I think it's more about investing in relationships, in connections with the people around us. So often I hear people say, I don't feel the connection with my colleagues at work anymore, especially since the hybrid work context. But I think it's because we barely take the time to listen to what other people are saying and how they're feeling and uh, give an adequate answer to that. Our life is so fast that we barely take the time to truly invest in relationships. So there, I think there's this unique opportunity to decide uh, now, like, we have to take time for that and 
truly connect. And empathy is, of course, one uh, thing of it, but it's also creating uh, psychological safety in the relationships that we have so that people dare to speak up and they're okay with making mistakes and admitting it and that you take interpersonal risks together. And because of that, that you can be more creative together and more resilient no matter what challenges are happening. And if you say passion, Stephen, I relate it to connection with ourselves. Too often we've forgotten about what our North Star is, our purpose, our why, or how you want to call it. And again, it's because we don't take the time to let our mind wander and know what we're really passionate about. And also here, there is this opportunity uh, in these times to sit back and think about what we are passionate about and making bold decisions based on that. I think this is um, also something interesting from a cultural point of view. I mean, if we talk about creativity, for example, often it is said Chinese are too pragmatic, not very creative when I look from a Chinese point of view. So maybe... AI could really help them to focus on other strengths that they have. For example, what you mentioned, networking is a very strong strength of the Chinese relationship culture. You also see things like passion. I mean, they're crazily passionate about specifically entrepreneurship and creating new businesses. And so it could actually, in a way, maybe change the preferences, maybe even the competition between different cultures because of strengths that they have. I'd like to get your point on that as well. Do you think that the world will have different environments based on the strengths that certain cultures have opposed to others based on their history and their civilization? Yes, I think uh, AI can certainly contribute to diminishing those cultural differences and improving uh, skills that some cultures may not have that much as other cultures. But it all starts with having this open mind to allow it and not be stubborn about it and uh, think like, this is how we're going to do it, but that we're not afraid to let AI enter our human skill set. Yeah, in China, definitely, they're not very much afraid of AI. They, they, they embrace it yeah, yeah, yeah. and they, they yeah. see this as a tool to enhance the human capability. So I, I think this is going to be interesting times to see how it's, it's all going to evolve. If, if I can add into that, I think, um, Stephen, back to your question, huh? I remember that, that the three elements you put into the book, I still think that you should write a new version of that book, because I think the topics are even, I think, more relevant today than it was then. Mm -hmm. I think then it was maybe a little bit abstract, yeah. you know, because everybody was getting so excited about digital. But I think now we're trying to rebalance that. And I think AI has put that into a whole new perspective. Happy to write a book together on this uh, if you want. So it's an open invitation. Uh, you know, things can happen yeah, on this that's, podcast. It's yeah. a good invitation. And I agree that the topic is more relevant than ever. Uh, yeah, it is. Absolutely. And the one thing is, when you look at empathy, there is that famous study that came out last year where a chatbot had more empathy than a human doctor. Mm -hmm. Honestly, and I'm going to have to be very careful how I phrase this, <laughs> I think it has to do more with doctors than with chatbots. Yeah, I don't know, Peter. I don't know because, I mean... Doctors have the reputation of not being empathic, but, you know, reality is also that they're under immense... You said I that. I didn't I say that. You said that. Well, <laughs> they look at the but human it's, body it's... more as a machine sometimes because they have to. Um, but they are under immense time pressure. You know, they have more and more patients. They're less and less doctors. So if you only have 10 minutes a patient and you need to show empathy, I think you're getting nervous because, you know, I have... 10 others waiting and, and there's so much stress that you don't have time to be empathic, even if you would 
want it to be. So the combination there of being open to the machine and that doctors do their thing, I think that's the way forward. I, I don't think that we can make doctors more empathic. I think it has more to do with the limitations on time rather than something else. Could be, could be. But I think fundamentally, first of all, it was a very limited study. I actually took the time to dive into it. It was a very limited study. Everybody is using that mm -hmm. now to say, oh my God, look at that. I mean, empathy in healthcare is going to change because of AI. I'm not really sure. And I think we might have to be very careful that very soon we're not going to have AI that gives us like a fake sense of empathy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that authentic empathy mm -hmm. is something that might be quite different. I've always had that when you look at the difference between retail in the US and retail in Europe, right? In general, in retail in Europe, you don't expect people to be friendly to you, okay? If you have a really That's friendly That's something that retailer, you said now, huh, Peter? <laughs> That's something that I said. But if you have a really wonderful customer experience in a retail environment in Europe, you think... Wow. In the US, everybody's friendly, but you often feel that it's kind of fake, that it's not authentic, that it's just a pattern that they go through. And I think in terms of empathy, I think we're going to have to be very careful that AI doesn't give us like a fake Disney-esque sense of empathy, but that true authentic empathy. I personally think mm -hmm. that might be something different. Yeah. But you could have a ladder. Like I would still, I don't know what you all think, but I still prefer unauthentic friendliness over unfriendliness, if I have to choose. <laughs> but of course, the sumum, the top of the whole thing is the authentic empathy and friendliness, right? Yeah. Are those three steps or, not, or am I the only one who thinks like that? <laughs> no, no, I think you're right. But I sometimes have this awkward feeling when you have that unauthentic empathy mm -hmm. that I get just, you know, it, it just irritates me. Yeah, it's okay. too sugary, you know? it's too fake. And I just, I just hate that. So I'm not sure. I think that's going to be an interesting debate. Elka, what do you think? I agree. Agree it's, with <laughs> me, right? Agree with, yeah. Exactly. I, I, I feel empathy for your... <laughs> For what you're saying. Well, I sometimes really block if people are behaving in a fake, friendly way. And I'd rather have that people would ignore me than that it's over the top. Okay. But what Steven said, uh, it, it's all about time pressure. Yeah. Uh, we're living in such a fast world that we barely take the time to look at the other person and really connect. And the other day I was in a shop and I expected some friendliness of the lady at, as I had known her for years, uh, uh, me being a client of hers. And then when I paid and I said, well, have a nice weekend, she even didn't look up anymore. <laughs> she was just on her computer screen, not bonding well. And it's the same if you go to a restaurant with a good friend that you haven't seen in half a year. And the first thing that they do is to put their smartphone with the screen on top. And that part of their attention is already directed to someone else in the world who might catch their attention instead of that half a year dinner that you're having at that moment. And I think it's that we're getting addicted to many stimuli and really have difficulty to being right here, right now. And probably people listening or watching this podcast will be doing other things at the same time because it has become really difficult to focus. And I would assume that if we are to focus better and are okay with living more in the now, 
that empathy will be increasing big time. Okay. Maybe yeah. another thing, Peter, a question for you. I listened to um, a speech at the World Economic Forum just last week about AI. Some of the, I mean, the top AI guys in the world, uh, including from China, Li Kai-Fu was there. And they were mentioning that one of the challenges of AI was that it can't predict from visuals yet. Meaning that if a baby or let's say a one-year-old kid sees something fall, he probably can or she can expect this to break. AI can't do that yet. We can predict language, but we can't predict video yet, what is going to happen next. And I, I think, I mean, talking about empathy, this might be the real issue as soon as AI could actually see with eyes and, and predict what would be happening next, they might also embed some part of empathy in there. What's your take on that? I mean, first of all, I, I think what we've seen in terms of advancements in the language domain yep. has been spectacular. So I think that's a path that we're going to see more and more things go slowly and then, you know, they escalate very quickly. I think we're going to see that also in everything that is non-text related. And I think yep. that multimodal is going to be, I think, the big thing of this year. I do believe that just like in language, the biggest issue we now have in AI is that it's really just predicting Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just huge statistical modeling. I think we're going to see a combination where you have that power combined with some of the more reasoning. And I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to see that in the world of video as well, mm -hmm. where if you look at, say, the gaming industry, uh, things like a gravity engine, where you understand how something is going to fall, that is now well-established in the gaming industry. And I wouldn't be surprised that also in the visual element, we're going to see a combination of huge statistics and some of these you know, physics laws, mm. you know, some of these mechanisms that we can probably borrow from the gaming industry that get embedded. That's going to be a really powerful combination. But you know, I think a bigger point there, Pascal, is I mean, the, the second thing that Stephen talked about is, is that creativity. <laughs> I honestly believe that we're going to see a new form. I mean, we're going to see a whole generation that is going to take this into account and work on top of that. We have a niece that studies the graphical arts, and she did a really nice exhibit in the museum in Ghent where the students had to take existing works of art, you know, works that are 100, 200, 300 years old, and then do something creative in the realm of AI with that. And she she took a painting and then she basically made variations of that painting with video. Yeah? And depending on the real live weather situation outside, it could be windy, then you could see that you know, the lady's hair was blowing or it could be raining and you could see that. But it was, it was a wonderful way to combine the real world with the world of art and taking paintings into videos. And if I saw how that generation just plays with these tools, I think we're going to have a generation that has creative superpowers. Mm. And an, an interesting question on that, and I, I'd love to get Elka's point of view on that, is are we going to get a new gap? Because I think we've all experienced in our lives generational gaps. And I remember when a long time, we never use that word anymore. We used to talk about digital natives. Mm -hmm. And you know, I hate that word. I mean, that doesn't even mean anything. But I do believe that if you look at the Generation Z that we have now, which is basically, you know, I have two kids who are Gen Z. I see now that they are in university using AI as just the most normal thing in the world. 
And I really believe that once they get into the workforce, they're just going to take this as, you know, the most normal thing in the world to use AI as a part of their tools and their instruments. And I think that could be a big gap in the workforce going forward because they now have time. They have four, five, six years where they can really understand how to use these tools and then figure out what it means for their schoolwork, for their studies, and they're going to use that in work. But if you're a millennial who's working their ass off every single day, you have kids, you have a mortgage, you don't have time to take you know, the opportunity to understand what AI is going to be. And I really believe that once Gen Z is going to enter the workforce who have these creative superpowers, I think they are going to hunt down the millennials who haven't had the time to, all they do is they can just try ChatGPT a few times and think, oh, interesting, but they don't have time to actually do that. So I think there's going to be a gap. I think we should rename Gen Z to Gen AI because <laughs> I think that's going to be the big confrontation in the workforce. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think you're really right, Peter. And it's not only about that millennials are lacking the time, but I also often see that it's also about the mindset. In uh, Belgium on September 1st, when school started again, there was this newspaper article, of course, not written by Gen Z, but by a millennial, who said 25 tips for teachers to keep ChatGPT out of the classroom. <laughs> it says so much about the mindset of millennials and how they look at AI and about how threatening it still is for so many. Uh, so I think it's a combination about us lacking the time to learn it uh, thoroughly, but also still many people have this wrong mindset and probably their companies can also step in and sensibilize millennials a lot better about the opportunities of AI instead of focusing on the threats and ruminating, will I still be relevant in the future of work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hey, as this is the first episode of 2024, Shall we do a, a short prediction, all of us, of something that we think that will happen in 2024? And then in December 2024, we can check if we were right or if we were completely wrong. Do you think that's a good idea? I think it's a really good idea. Yeah, sure. Who wants to kick off? Who wants to kick off? I'll do a simple one. Being an Apple fanboy, as you know, I think the Apple Vision Pro is going to be a huge success. I think Apple's you know, venture into the world of augmented reality is going to be a killer. It's one of the most expensive pieces of hardware that you can buy, but I predict that it's going to be something that is going to be a big, big hit for 2024. Okay, thank you. Elke, Pascal? Well, relating uh, back to our discussion, I think it will be a year in which our resilience will be uh, challenged a lot and that more and more people uh, will accept that we have to create a resilient mindset, whether it's at work, the way we live, what's happening in the world, understanding that it's a time of a lot of volatility and this is not something that is going to pass anytime soon. And it will go from uh, resistance to all these crises to probably more acceptance that this is just as good as it gets and uh, having this more resilient mindset. Very good. Thank you. Pascal? Well, I think China is going to be a big hit in 2024. 
I mean, especially if it if it um, if it's according to Trump, China will be the target for every discussion that he will have. There was a crash on uh, the stock exchange last week in China, about almost 10% it lost. And, and the same day, Trump said, I won in Iowa. And you see what happened? The stock exchange <laughs> in Shenzhen just crashed. And so I'm joking. But reality is that I think China will have to put a new numbers on growth. I think there's going to be a huge debate on the economy. But my feeling is that China in 2024 could be back simply because they're focusing on, on some really long-term things that are going to make a big difference. One is AI. AI, it's everything around AI for China this, this year. And the most interesting on AI for 2024, in my view, is going to be about governance. In I think it's May or June, there will be in South Korea a summit on AI security. And China is going to probably roll out a whole new range of AI governance and security measures. And so that will probably start moving the West and China into different directions in terms of AI and AI governance. And that could be a big thing. Combine that with 5.5G, which China is launching this year, massively nationwide, which is about 10 times the speed of 5G, you will see that a lot of things will change in the industrial area. So I'm quite bullish that um, anything with the word smart in it is going to be doubling down in China. and But I can't predict which industries exactly. There's just too many to name. All right. So, Pascal, very, very quick question. Why 5.5G? Well, I mean, well, if you have something that is 10 times faster mm -hmm. than 5G, why don't you call that X or 6 or 7 or 12 or whatever? Well, but why a stupid, nerdy name like 5.5G? Well, when have Chinese ever been good at PR? I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the little red book is, I think, one of their biggest publicity stunts. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> but that was internal. That was not for the world. Uh, but the reality is that 5G is a standard that has been put many, many years back, and 6G as well. And they're not there yet. Uh, it would mean a whole new infrastructure for 6G, and it is said that China would be the first country in the world to launch this as well. Uh, Huawei is very far ahead on 6G. And so in the meantime, they've used the existing infrastructure of 5G, improved it, and so now it's 10 times faster, which makes Wi-Fi become irrelevant in many places. So it's really going to go uh, so fast. Many industries will have a huge difference. 10 times is a big difference for anything related to IoT. So yes. Any idea what the number of G will be when you retire, Pascal? <laughs> uh, what, what are you aiming for? 12G, 12.5G? You know, I mean, uh, any predictions there? Uh, uh, no, uh, I, I like the number <laughs> eight. Uh, that's, that's a lucky number in China. <laughs> so. <laughs> Stephen, what's your prediction? My prediction is that in Belgium, we will not feel the difference between 5G and 4G as we had in the past <laughs> year. Uh, it's a marketing thing. I think no one really feels the difference. So, And I, that will not change in the next 12 months. <laughs> no, I'm going to do a, a fun, small prediction. My prediction is that Mr. Beast will open up his first theme park in 2024. Uh, we all know Mr. Beast. You all know that I'm a big fan of him. He has now more than 220 million subscribers, which is almost like yeah, an, an entire continent, uh, if, you, if you think about this. So he's the most influential media person in the world. And if you look at his audience, 
young people, children, it would make a lot of sense to start with theme parks. He could potentially become the next Walt Disney, but just starting from a different angle. And if I, if I have to visualize his theme parks, I'm not thinking about a Disneyland kind of theme park, but more like a challenges kind of theme park where you have to do challenges and where you can win really cool prices. Like in Belgium, Peter and me, we invested in Sparks, which is the largest sports theme park in Europe. It's becoming a really big hit. Everyone is super excited about it, where you can do like more than 50 sports in real life, not in VR, but really experience them with simulators and with really cool applications. I envision a theme park like that, but then Mr. Beast branded. I can imagine if he would do that, it would be an insane, insane hit. And for him to invest in that, I mean, we know how much Sparks costs. I'm not going to mention that here, but for him, he wouldn't need fundraising to start like 10 of them this year. He can just pay it in no time. And it would be my advice for him to start with Mr. B Steam Parks. Have you met him, Stephen? Unfortunately not. Unfortunately. Well, why don't you set that as a challenge for yourself? Yeah. yeah, that's a good idea. And maybe some of our listeners can help. They, they always say like, like there's one connection in between us and Mr. Beast. So we have to find out who that one connection is. Okay, so that, that's a nice challenge. We're going to try and connect you to Mr. Beast this yeah. year. Yeah? <laughs> and you then have to convince him to, start to you know, start a theme park. Yeah? And then, well, we can work with Mathieu, the founder of Sparks, and then see if we can do something there. Maybe he should just invest in Sparks and yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll call it Mr. Beast Theme Park. Yeah, I'm yeah sure we'll, we'll just change just names. Change uh, names uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe we should trademark it right now, Mr. Beast uh, Theme Parks. Uh, just to, so. I would be surprised if he hadn't already done that. <laughs> well, yeah. then we know he's on, on the same page as we are. Then we'll know who his legal advisors will be. <laughs> and we'll meet him in court. That yeah, be it's, a it's a strategy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Cool predictions. Maybe we can throw these on social media in a separate video and see what people think and, and see what other predictions are if people think we're completely crazy or if they agree with us. Maybe that would be a cool thing to get some of your feedback from all of the listeners. Let's go to the next topic. Peter, you wanted to give us an update on the Magnificent Seven. Yeah, uh, and so the Magnificent Seven is a term that actually last year really appeared because we're always trying to talk about the big tech and big tech is a strange name because, you know, what's in big tech? I remember when we would talk about the GAFA, the Google and Apple and Facebook and Amazon. But today, many people talk about the Magnificent Seven, which are the seven largest technology stocks out there in the West. Let's be clear about that. So the big seven is NVIDIA, is Meta, is Tesla, is Amazon, is Alphabet, the parent of Google, is Microsoft, and is Apple. And the Magnificent Seven has become almost like a phenomenon last year, especially because if you look at the sheer size of the Magnificent Seven, it's kind of you know, scary sometimes. To give you an idea, the Magnificent Seven had the best stock rally of last year. I mean, the amount of gains is just incredible. To give you an idea, NVIDIA last year in 2023 gained 239% on the stock exchange. 200 and, you know, that is just in incredible. Meta, which I did not expect, gained almost 200%. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, w- one of the horrible things is, you know, if I would just put all my net worth in Meta <laughs> stock in January 2023 and gone fishing for a year, I would be better <laughs> off than, you know, what I did the entire year. Tesla 
102% gain on the stock exchange. Amazon, 81%. Alphabet, 60%. Microsoft, 57%. And Apple, 48%. I mean, they are spectacular. And if you look at that, the scary part is that the Magnificent Seven, just these seven stocks, now actually amount to 30% of the capitalization of the S&P 500. So it means that the other 493 companies feel really bad, you know, because it's these seven companies that really, really made the difference. And it's a phenomenon. And what I'd love to do is have a little bit of a debate with you guys on how you think about the Magnificent Seven, whether you think that we're going to go to the Magnificent Ten, or is it going to go back to the Magnificent Four? And I'd love, Pascal, to get your opinion on, you know, the counterpart of the Magnificent Seven, you know, in China, of course. But let me start first with NVIDIA, because NVIDIA is a newcomer to the big tech. I mean, many people had not even heard of NVIDIA until two years ago. I mean, I remember... I heard NVIDIA the first time because I have a gamer son and, you know, the graphical cards that NVIDIA made were just the best graphical cards if you are a hardcore gamer. And then all of a sudden it turned out that NVIDIA, these same gaming you know, infrastructure technology devices are just absolutely brilliant for artificial intelligence. And NVIDIA can't make them fast enough. The chips that they have devised are not just really good for gaming, but really good for AI as well. And in one of the last earnings calls that Mark Zuckerberg did, he talked about how many NVIDIA devices he would have at the end of 2024. I mean, even the, the collection of NVIDIA has now become like a fetish. It's Pokemon cards. A Pokemon yeah. cards. I guess a Pokemon <laughs> cards, even for the tech companies. So NVIDIA is the absolute darling of the stock exchange 2023. What do you guys think? Is it going to fall back? Is it going to normalize? I mean, it, it, people are still going NVIDIA crazy at the moment with love to get your ideas if they really belong in the Magnificent Seven or not. I'll start with NVIDIA, if that's okay. I mean, I've been following um, this industry for a long, long time. And for me, NVIDIA is indeed awkward within that list, just because it's a hardware company. But there's also a reason why they boosted so much last year, and that had to do with the Chinese buying up every NVIDIA chip they could they get their hands on, uh, simply because the US was blocking them. So there's a lot of NVIDIA chips that went into China. And so you could really see the stock go up and down depending on the decisions in Washington on NVIDIA. And so when they say, oh, that chip will not be available in China anymore, suddenly the stock went down, and then they made a new chip, and then suddenly they could sell that again, and, and it went up again like crazy. So so Chinese have been stocking up. That's one thing. But I also, I mean, actually, the founder of NVIDIA was in China just last week. Under the radar, nobody can notice. This is a top secret. But everybody on the internet has seen it. We always wonder, Pascal, how, <laughs> how do, do you know, you these things? know this? Well, what is your source? <laughs> well, yeah, I can't tell you, honestly, honestly. <laughs> no, um, no, just, no, it's on the internet everywhere. Um, but, uh, but the whole thing is that he's it's very low profile, but everybody has seen it. But uh, I mean, China is such a big opportunity for NVIDIA. And so I do think as long as AI and as long as China and everything seems to be competitive and they're all 
wanting to be part of this change, NVIDIA is going to do well. If that would change and Chinese are building AI chips, I'm sure that at one point it's going to be more common. The AI chips, more companies will have it Then maybe, because now it's all about capacity. It is. It is all about capacity. It's all, you know, how much can you manufacture? So I agree with you. Let's let's jump to the second one, because I think that's a more interesting one. Meta. I was completely surprised that Meta had, you know, such an enormous run last year, because I remember everybody laughed at Meta in the beginning of the year. And it was because if you remember 2022, it was all about the metaverse. It was all about virtual reality. And Zuckerberg put all in on VR. And in the beginning of 2023, people said, what a bunch of baloney. I mean, VR is not, it doesn't deserve the hype that it's gotten. I think Meta made a complete fool of themselves by changing their name from Facebook to Meta because they thought the metaverse was going to be everything. Everybody laughed at Meta in the beginning of the year. And then all of a sudden, they have a 170% stock increase. And I think it's one of those companies that First of all, their core business in advertising was better than ever. Instagram remains the absolute success. Threads, surprisingly, is doing very well. I mean, I'm on Threads, but I've never posted a thread. I'm just still trying to figure out whether it's really, really real. But with X going down, Threads seems to be an alternative. And they're also really into the AI world. So Meta seems to be back from the dead. And I have no idea if you guys still use Facebook or Instagram, how important do you think social is going to be or whether Meta is repositioning and transforming into an AI company? I have no idea, but I would love to pick your brains. Elke, do you still use Instagram and Facebook? I do use Instagram. I still have a Facebook page, but it's more to relate to my uh, 70 plus uh, relatives. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but not to uh, have updates on uh, my own generation. Uh, but yes, Instagram personally, but also professionally, uh, we use it a lot. Yeah, and are you on Threads? No, 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 no. Stephen, what about you? Well, I, I think it's a super interesting case for us, Peter, because we talk about day after tomorrow. Uh, you have the model in your book and your slides: seventy twenty ten, uh, seventy today, twenty tomorrow, ten day after tomorrow. What Mark Zuckerberg did was for us an exceptional case because if you listen to what he was saying, he was going in, let's say, 70% day after tomorrow, 20 tomorrow, 10 today. I mean, the investments that he made, the number of billions was higher than what Apple invested in the iPhone. Uh, Those were the statistics that were all over the news. And in his communication, it was all about day after tomorrow. One of the learnings is that if you work the model or if you use the model like that, it just doesn't work because day after tomorrow, by definition, is long term. Mark Zuckerberg, in certain interviews, he even said like real augmented reality with with a device that is fashionable and that you could put on your face. It's going to take 10 years because it's so difficult to make. So he was talking about things that will bring in money 10 years from now. So it made investors super, super nervous um, and his costs went up. And then the learning is he completely changed that. So he's now back to let's say 70, 20, 10. He's still working on the day after tomorrow. But a lot of the resources, if you look now, are more on today, back on the advertising part. He fired a bunch of people, which made the investors happy again. They said, ah, he's going back to the to the cash cow. He's still innovative. They're working on AI, which is the next big thing. They're doing some good things there. But most importantly, 
the cash cow is still there. And if you look at the reach that they have with their platforms, I mean, we can be cynical about, about Facebook, but there's still millions, probably more than a billion people on the planet using Facebook every single day. Oh, we have WhatsApp as in many countries, the key communication platform in the world. Instagram is fantastic. Uh, the, the only challenge, of course, that he has is TikTok, where they didn't find an answer for yet, which is going to be hard to find an answer for. But on the other hand, if you look at the most successful format today on Instagram, it's Reels, which is a copy-paste of TikTok. Stories are super important, more than the regular post, which is a copy-paste of Snapchat. So if he cannot kill the enemy or buy the enemy, he's very smart in copying it and trying to you know, use their tactics on his larger reach. And advertisers still love those platforms. A lot of reach, a lot of engagement, and he has a sales machine. So I think that uh, they are definitely part of the Magnificent Seven. Yeah, I think they're going to do well again this year. I agree. I agree. Moving on to the strangest one, uh, Tesla. I mean, for me, the whole Elon was, was <laughs> 2023 was, was Elon year. I mean, the book coming out and it was really fascinating. And, and Pascal, I'd love to get your input on that. I mean, we saw these reports that BYD was becoming the biggest electronic vehicle maker, I think last quarter in 2023. I think it's going to be a bloody fight in electric vehicles this year. I mean, the tsunami of Chinese EVs coming into Europe, for example, is a great example. You see Tesla slashing prices like crazy. I think this is going to be a bloodbath. So I wouldn't be surprised this year if after the enormous gains that Tesla had on the stock exchange, we might see a lot more shakier ground for Elon Musk trying to make Tesla still the absolute star out there. They're talking about the Magnificent Six sometimes now, the seven well, minus yeah, I mean, Tesla. It's the Magnificent Six plus the really crazy guy out yeah. there. It's, it's that combination probably. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. I mean, does anybody know who number eight is? No, okay. <laughs> I, I checked it. Eight is your favorite number. That's why yeah, you that's have why to know. You have to have eight and everything. No, because yeah. I checked it uh, because I wanted to know who were the top eight leaders or founders of the big companies. This is months ago I checked this. It's Oracle. And, oh, Oracle. and no, really? nobody talks yeah. about that anymore. So I think the seven is going to go down. I think uh, NVIDIA could be in a hard place at a certain moment if capacity is not the issue anymore. I do think Tesla will have head-on competition. But if you look at Tesla and BYD, I mean, they are more than 50% of the market of EVs together. So there's not a number three. I mean, the number three is like way, it's like Volkswagen and, and some others. And So it's a Coke and Pepsi race and the rest is... It's a, it's a Coke and Pepsi race clearly between BYD and Tesla. Tesla yeah. And so for me, I think both will survive, both will do good, will do great. I think we're going to see great things coming from China in the next years. And as you said, BYD surpassed Tesla in the last quarter in number of sales. It was more than 500,000 that they sold, half a million cars. And yeah, I was interviewed three times at, a, at the television in the last uh, weeks just on BYD and, and in Belgium, the purchase from the BYD buses instead of Van Hall, simply because nobody understands why this is happening. And it's very clear to me. I mean, they've been investing on this for a long time. It's the day after tomorrow. BYD got it. Tesla got it. I mean, Tesla before BYD, but BYD had an advantage in the batteries. Tesla had an advantage as an early mover. And so now they're both uh, going to make a difference. So, yeah. 
So do you drive a BYD, Pascal? Uh, it will be my next car. It will be your next car. Well, I, I would suggest that once you have it, you take us all four for a spin <laughs> in your brand new BYD. would love that. I'm going to skip on the Amazon and Alphabet because you know, they're interesting companies, but I want to focus just the last part here on the last two, Microsoft and Apple, because they've been fighting out that who's the biggest you know, in the world, who's the biggest market capitalization. Apple had that position for a really long time. But although I am an Apple fanboy, as you know, I honestly think Microsoft probably deserves more to be there in the most valuable place. And for me, Microsoft has been a company that I admire. I wrote about Microsoft as a phoenix in the Phoenix and the Unicorn. And it's not because they have brilliant technology. It's really because I think they have brilliant, brilliant leadership. I had the chance to you know, engage in an event where Satya Nadella was speaking. It was amazing to see that power of the individual. And honestly, I think when Satya Nadella came on as the CEO, I think he was the one who said there are eight Googles inside our R&D, but they're not getting out anymore. And I think the real reason why Microsoft is the most valuable company in the world is not technology, but a brilliant way to lead that company, to change the culture and mindset of the company. And Elka, I'm sure that it's one of those companies that you must admire in their capability to actually be able to do that. Yes, definitely. He's a good example of an authentic leader speaking up, opening up, and being a very good role model for employees. And therefore, um, really uh, being a, a big player when you, when you compare it to the Apple leadership. Yeah, and I, I think yeah, Tim Cook is, I think, a really good manager, but Satya mm-hmm. Nadella is an amazing leader. And yeah. I think that's that's something that really shines through. So I honestly think that they're the most valuable company in the world, but I think they're still going places. So um, I think Microsoft is one of those companies that I'm going to keep following with extreme interest. Do you remember, Peter, our first Silicon Valley tour together, 2013? (laughs) So we spent four days or three days in San Francisco. Then we flew to Seattle. We went to Starbucks. We went to Amazon. And we went to the HQ of Microsoft. Microsoft. And everyone that was on that tour will acknowledge this. We had an amazing week with amazing speakers. Everyone was super pumped up. And then we went to Microsoft and it was the worst meeting you can imagine. I mean, it was boring. The person who saw us was like a tour guide more than someone who could inspire us. And I remember your words on the bus after that, Peter. You said this could either become a big disaster and a dinosaur that will, you know, be dead really soon, or this could become the most impressive Harvard Business Review case of a company that will have to reinvent itself. Those were almost literally your words after that visit. And then about six months later, uh, I think, Satya Nadella started early 2014 somewhere. And if you now look 10 years later, it was the second part of your you know, question that you asked us. This is the most impressive Harvard Business Review case in terms of reinventing yourself that we've ever seen of a company of that size. Super impressive. Yep. I was at an event I, of. Uh, I didn't. I didn't remember. I said that, but I think it was. Visionary. It was visionary. It was one of those visionary <laughs> moments. Uh, but that's why I want to bring it up again. Huh? But you know, I, if if I was at a Microsoft event a few months ago, if you see the demos of the things that they're working on, it is super impressive and could again be completely transformational in the way that we work and in terms of productivity. So, 
I probably would invest in Microsoft if I would have to choose one of the seven, even though they're already so big. But the potential upwards, I think, is, is still pretty impressive. And I also love the fact that they take risks. And let's be honest, this is a day and age where taking risk is not easy because there is regulation and compliance and governance. And you know, a lot of companies who have that size don't really dare to do these things anymore. But what Microsoft is doing under his leadership, my God, they are um, a, a wonderful example. Yeah. They talk about the big bet and there's no plan B is what they told me. It's all in on... Yeah, yeah productivity gain of people around the world, all in. Excellent. All right. Thank you, Peter, for that update. We could talk for hours about this, uh, and I'm sure we will continue to discuss those companies in, in the next 12 months. Pascal, I'm going to move to you. Time for our China chapter. Yes. And you want to give us an update on the mobility innovation in China. Yeah, it's uh, Stephen, it's, it's been a crazy month, December, January, the things coming out of China when it comes to mobility. And I'm going to name a few things. And, and you might be talking about uh, CES as well, but at the Computer Electronics Show, Consumer Electronics Electronic Electronic Show. Show. Yes, yeah. I make it the Chinese Computer Electronics Show. But <laughs> no, no. You almost made it the Chinese Electronics Show. <laughs> well, it, was, it actually is a Chinese Electronics Show <laughs> because out of the, the more than 25% of all the boots were Chinese. The small ones, uh, the small ones then probably. <laughs> uh, there were some very big. Actually, the talk of the town at CES was uh, Xpeng's flying car. It's called Aero HT. And it's uh, Xpeng is one of the big electronic car manufacturers, so EVs, electronic vehicle manufacturers. And they launched that globally at CES. And you can pre-order it. It's available in 2025. It's about 150,000 US dollars. So I think that's kind of like a, the price of a big, expensive uh, luxury car. But the nice thing about this car is that it's not just flying, it's actually also driving. So it, you can drive with it, and then the propellers change, and then you fly away with it. <laughs> and uh, this is different from the one that everybody has always talked about with flying cars, which is from Yihang, another Chinese company that's been around for about eight, nine years. And this is called EVTOL. So it's vertical takeoff and landing vehicles instead of EV, it's EVTOL. And they are launched last month, the first commercial flight in Guangzhou. It means that somebody bought a ticket actually to fly one of these cars and flew in Guangzhou in the city uh, from one point to another point. Uh, but they can't drive the, the Yihang. It's only flying. So it's a very different market. Xpeng, they really want this to become a consumer product that anybody can buy this car and can fly around with it. Interesting is this is the same month that the Chinese regulators have actually opened up the low altitude airspace in China. Anything below 300 meters is now not regulated. What that means is you don't have these uh, towers that have to regulate the airspace for planes. And so suddenly drones and flying cars are going to become a normal uh, or a new normal in China. And they're starting to do it. If you add on top of that some of the developments you saw at CES, like um, L4 autonomous driving, we write, and also the LiDAR development in China with a company called Hersai. It's really impressive how they're moving towards everything autonomous in China as well. One of these interesting things is that uh, China has now, Baidu has their autonomous self-driving taxis in about eight cities. And they plan in 2025 to have it available, self-driving autonomous taxis in 65 cities. 
in China. I have so many questions on this, Pascal. I mean, first of all, the, the flying car, okay? I've seen the pictures of the flying car. Yeah. It flies, okay? But it's it's huge. Yes. It's absolutely <laughs> huge. I mean, I've been to China on multiple occasions. Huh? I cannot see, I mean, when you look at the car, yeah. and then when it expands the rotors, it's like you need like more than a car left yeah. and more than a car right just to unfold it. Then it needs to take off. Yeah. I hope that you don't have any trees in your lawn because, or, you know, electricity. But I don't see that in China, yeah, right? I mean, in China, there are so many cars on the road. I don't see a car all of a sudden saying, oh, shit, I'm stuck in traffic. I'm going to get out of here. I don't see that happening. No, but they have skyscrapers, and so they're all going to be on the roof. And so you just need to take the elevator, the lift to, to the roof, and then fly fly even higher. Second but question. Do you need, <laughs> what kind of a license do you need to fly a car? Or is it going to be autonomous? It's going to be autonomous. Right now, it's, it's going to be autonomous. Uh, I mean, that's the whole idea. I mean, this is going to merge the cars and the flying cars into autonomous driving. But right now, you need a pilot's license probably to do that, just for the people that can do it. Yeah. My suggestion, Pascal, is don't buy a BYD. Buy one of these, because I think I know, it's going to be even a lot more fun to fly us four around in your flying uh, Chinese There's only car space for just... one person right now in, in oh. that car. So <laughs> that's know. the... That's the limitation. Um, but anyway, China is going crazy these these months. And, and so we see really things moving very, very quickly. But one of the things that really excited me last month was the new car from Xiaomi. Xiaomi being the Chinese Apple. And Apple, I don't know if you know this, Peter, but they've had, or Stephen, they wanted to have a, a car for a very long, long time. Long time, yeah. 2008. Apple announced they were going to build a car. Well, we're in 2024 now. No, that's yeah. not true. That's, they, those are rumors. They did not. They were rumors. Okay. They, they, they were rumors. And they hired a lot of autonomous driving and car engineers, mm. but they never, ever said they were going to build a car. Yeah. Well, rumors in China, are they true? Are they not true? There's different opinions on that. Uh, but whenever Xiaomi has a rumor, at least they release a car. And so the interesting thing about Xiaomi is that it took 3,400 engineers. Imagine 3,400 engineers worked on this. This is 10 times the cost as an average EV to build. They did that in three years' time and they had their own car. The founder of Xiaomi, Leijun, said very clearly, we're going to take on Tesla S and Porsche Taycan. It's as good. It goes 800 kilometer reach. It goes same acceleration. But what I really find fascinating about this car is that they've made it, because it's a cell phone manufacturer, they've made it an open IoT platform. Well, that means is that anybody can build an application for that car. So imagine that a developer somewhere says, oh, I want to build this or that or that. They can just plug that in, just like it's iTunes. And, and that, I think, could really change. They've outsold everyone on it. It looks really sexy. It looks it's, very nice. It is. Have you heard about uh, the Dutch uh, version of the, the flying car? Yes, that was, that was before. Yeah. It was in 2012. Yeah. But is that company still around? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Good. 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 Uh, good. Good. The other Just, day. So yeah. flying Dutchman is sometimes um, a very different yeah, concept. But, <laughs> but, but, but you need a, a pilot license for yeah, it. Yeah. 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 
And I think the same in China right now, but all this is going to be autonomous. So Xiaomi really excited me because of the speed of innovation. I mean, if you add a lot of people and the designer, the top designer was from BMW, if you uh, add a lot of people, you can actually make it really fast. The other company that came out with a car a couple of months ago is Huawei. Imagine, wouldn't have expected Huawei to build it, but it's a really good car. It's called the Aito M9. I'm not going to go into detail, about 630 kilometer range, but it's all going very nicely. But they are using a CATL battery. And I want to talk about CATL because we're always talking about BYD, but CATL is actually even more advanced in battery construction than BYD is. This is the number one in the world in battery constructions. They've developed, of their released last month, a new battery, which is called the CIIC, a skateboard battery. And I think this is genius. What it means is that now the whole car is embedded in a battery. So you have not just the battery, but also the whole electric motor, all the electricity, all the critical components, everything is in the battery. And they sell the battery to a car manufacturer that just has to put the frame on it and the, the steering wheels and the chairs. And so you're seeing that this battery production is becoming the platform for the EV industry. Imagine if CATL, and this is why I'm excited, if CATL would build like 100 different types of batteries with different components. I mean, anybody can build a car in a matter of a week. I mean, this is like building your own cell phone in China. You build your own car. This is going to put the whole industry upside down. So the battery construction or manufacturers could become the new car manufacturers of the future. And BYD and CATL are leading that direction simply because of the innovation they're doing it. So for me, this is big news. And I think this is going to be very excited to see that industry change from a pure construction and distribution ship and, and, and lots of retail and lots of after-sales to really just a plug-and-play system. The other thing I wanted to mention on the car is uh, BYD <laughs> hasn't just bought their own ship. No. It's a cargo ship, roll on, roll off. So typically for cars, 7,000 BYD cars can be put on the ship. And they're planning to buy nine more to have 10 ships. And all of these ships are going to come to Europe. What that means is that we are going to get flooded literally by BYD cars coming from China directly because if they can afford their own ship, they know that there's going to be a market. So this is going to be a huge invasion of BYD cars coming in the next year. And this is what the European Commission is so worried about. But this is all happening. So lots of stuff happening. But I want to talk about ships. China bought its first cruise ship or created and launched its first cruise ship. China never had a cruise ship. Now they have one that is called the Adora Magic City. Of course, it's magic. You like that, uh, Steve. I'm a fan magic. of magic. Um, so <laughs> it's not from Walt Disney it's, or Disneyland. It's from China this time, Chinese magic. It's the first cruise ship, which has about 5,200 people can board it, 2,500 cabins. It's an amazing ship, 30 restaurants and bars, 2,000 square meters in shopping, I mean, luxury, whatever you need. The most interesting for all of us, and this is something maybe we should do one day, ah. they have a theater of 1,000 people. Have you ever given a keynote on a cruise ship? Yeah, yeah. I did. Me too. Yeah. You did? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really? Oh, I But it wasn't, now it wasn't that one. So I, I would love to go there with the four of us. We can reach out to them. Uh, Pascal, yeah. I will try to go to Mr. Beast. You have to arrange a keynote for the four of us yeah. on that ship. I can get us into the Chinese cruise ship. There's no, no problem. There, there we go. That's a done um, deal. And then... <laughs> 
So anyway, that's the whole thing. But it's, uh, do you know how many components uh, has a cruise ship? Wait, you mean part? <laughs> uh, come on. Parts, yes. <laughs> I mean, different parts are different parts. So 10 times the same bolts is just one. Eh? Different types of parts. 100,000. Mm. Elke? Half a million. Mm. 25 million. 25 million. 25 million. Oh, 25 he, he, million. Steven didn't even dare to name a number. I was, I was thinking if you would ask me, I always make a fool out of myself when you guys ask me for numbers. So I'm just yeah. doing the yeah. smart thing and not so, saying anything. So it's, this is what I, I, I'm thinking. I mean, if a, a ship like that has 25 million components, how much of that will come from China? So Chinese building cruise ships, they're the best ship builders anyway. I mean, it just makes sense. It's, it's just surprising they haven't gone into that market earlier, which is monopolized by the US and Europe at this moment with three big companies in the world. Last thing I want to talk about, and then I'm going to end, is also the plane, the C919. So China launched that officially last year in uh, May. It's been developed since 2008. Right now it has had 650 flights, 80,000 passengers, who would dare to fly on a C919? You would. I would, I, I've I would, heard, yeah. I don't know you if would. this is true, Pascal, yeah. but yeah. I heard that like 75% or 80% of the parts of that plane come from uh, Europe or the US. So I yep. think we're good. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yep. So I've asked somebody at Boeing, a VP, uh, how many of their parts come from the US. And it's, it's, it's the same range. 75% doesn't come from the US or doesn't come from their areas. So I think it's an industry where you can't have everything built yourself anymore, anyhow. And a lot is coming from China. But of course, the, I mean, some of the things you have to still rely on Rolls-Royce engines or GE engines and so on. It's, it's, there's not 20 other companies doing that. But it's getting there. But here's the interesting thing. China asked the European Union for certification to fly this plane in Europe. So we're going to have direct competition, not just from the cars, the EVs, not just from Airbus will have competition. I mean, Boeing, they're taking the place of Boeing because Boeing is, has in, is in trouble, but also the cruise ships. And so what is going to be left in terms of transportation where actually China is not going to try and lead the world? It's really changing very fast. And all that happened in the last months and weeks just recently. Just to add on to that, I mean, when you look at the airplane industry, I think you know, COVID was disastrous for the entire industry. And then post-COVID, you could clearly see that both Boeing and Airbus couldn't roll out airplanes fast enough. So mm -hmm. the production stress yep. on these companies is huge. That might have been the cause for some of the yeah. issues that Boeing now has. But Airbus, for example, I mean, th there is an, a complete operational pressure. And you know, if you cannot deliver your airplanes fast enough, I think that probably is a good place for Chinese competition to understand where there are opportunities. Yeah, it links nicely with what we talked about resilience and how you can keep on doing the same what you've always done on automatic pilot, so as to say, or like have this resilient mindset and uh, be extremely aware about uh, what's happening in China and how it will be challenging uh, I completely agree. us yeah. in Europe. It was always a mystery to me why we only had two companies in the world, Boeing and Airbus, that were capable of delivering you know, the type of aircraft that the world needs. 
And, and I think, honestly, in the next uh, 5, 10, 20 years, we're probably going to see a huge potential for Chinese you know, companies to, to come in. So, uh, yeah, the geopolitics of innovation are more important than ever before. I talked to a guy when we were in Scotland, Peter, and he was part of a, a defense flight. I don't know if you talked to that guy. And he was saying one of the big issues of whether it's Boeing, Airbus or anything in the defense in, in, the, in the airplane industry is that they don't have enough experts anymore. So with COVID, many uh, young engineers who were trained actually left the industry and went into the retail and other industries and they didn't come back. Well, they lost a lot of people with expertise and the older people are, are going to retirement. So And they know exactly how this works. So we're getting into a generation issue when it comes to building these high-tech secure environments where the people who know it are going into retirement and the young people have left. And so there's a gap. So the big question is going to be which one of us four is going to have the first flying car. That is, um, you know, something that I'm going to be thinking of. What do you predict? Honestly, I think Steven is going to be the first to fly in a flying car because he's always really good to have access to it. But knowing Steven, he's not going to buy it. That would be my prediction. Uh, no, that's, I'm not going to buy it. That's true. My prediction would be Pascal <laughs> looking at all his... Chinese sources and the fact yeah. that it's it's going so fast in China compared to other parts in the world. He goes often to China and you're going to be in, in gonna, one of those in, in the next 18 months, I think. I'm going to try and beat everyone on, on flying <laughs> in a flying car. It's, it's, it's my goal for 2020. There are a lot of ambitions here that we talk about. Oh, this, this episode, that's really good. I'm, I'm going to round off just briefly about CES this year, the Consumer Electronics Show. Uh, the C is for consumer here. <laughs> I, I was at CES in, in 2020, just before COVID. I, I always wanted to be there once. So I went there and I really enjoyed myself. And I still remember that back then, the big label that every boot had was it's Alexa enabled. It's Google Assistant enabled. It was all voice. And today, every boot was about AI. Everything is now with AI. And in all honesty, I was a little bit underwhelmed with a lot of things. I think the, the same mistakes are happening again, that we're doing AI for the sake of AI or like with things that underperform. And then some, you know, technologists can get really excited about some innovations. Like, I don't know if you saw these binoculars by Swarovski. They've been all over the internet. So like AI-based binoculars. So if you look at a bird, it will identify the bird and you will see the name of that bird through the lenses of the binocular. So a cool gadget is what you could say, but the price of that is $4,800. Uh, and then we say that the Apple Vision Pro is expensive. This is a stupid binocular that only allows you to look at birds. I was thinking someone that is so into birds doesn't need a binocular of 4,800 euros because they know what kind of bird they're looking at. So only the market for this is people who are not interested in birds. So who in the world will invest that kind of money to a device like this? Or another one. I don't know how you pronounce it. I think it's Glukskind or something like this. They make now AI-powered strollers so that you don't have to push it yourself anymore. It's completely hands-free. It stops when there's a red light and it rocks your child to sleep all the time. I mean, people that need a stroller, have a baby. Usually those people love their baby and they're super excited that they can walk around with it. And imagine a young mother just walking and next to her, there's a stroller with the child. I just cannot imagine that anyone would buy this. This is again like technology for the sake of technology. Or another one that the internet was raving about is the Rabbit R1. 
Did you see that? It's like a small yeah, game console, you could say, where you can automatically let apps work on. And they said like, whoa, now you can control Spotify and Uber through voice and AI on that device. This could be the smartphone killer was the PR. I like my smartphone also has access to Uber and Spotify and probably the place where this will speed up in terms of innovation will be my smartphone. But apparently people get really excited about it. The one thing that I really liked in terms of AI empowered application was Wisp, which is actually a company from the Netherlands. And they are really helping people with their solution. What they do is they're using AI to bring the natural voice back of people who had like throat cancer or where something was going wrong with their voice and they have difficulties to speak or their voice completely changed that they speak with a very rough voice. Those people are super sad that their original voice is gone. Now they figured out a way how to capture that old voice, bring it back. And the use case that they have is during phone calls because those people suffer a lot when they're making a phone call because a lot of the times people on the other side of the phone, they don't understand them anymore because their voice is so hurt. Now they can make phone calls like they used to. And then, of course, they have beautiful videos of people that hear their original voice back and they can use it again, which was very emotional. But I think this is what really brings value. And it's again the question, we have a technology, are we going to look for problems or are we going to make something that really solves a problem? And if you ask me, CES, um, most of the things was just technology for the sake of technology. Another topic was, of course, the mobility. Pascal, you talked about it. And there it's almost embarrassing for the European car manufacturers. I mean, if we just heard the stories that Pascal was sharing, how this is completely transformational, the biggest news from European car manufacturers was that Volkswagen will use ChatGPT in the car. And BMW has figured out something like valet parking, automated valet parking, which is very unclear when it would work or how it would work. But it's ridiculous if you compare it with the innovations of the Chinese. So they call it the biggest mobility show on earth, but it has become the biggest Chinese mobility show on earth. So I, I fully support that. Yeah. And Tesla. Yeah. So my feeling is it's difficult for all these new brands to come up with something that shows a lot of value. I, I think the conclusion is that the ones that are leading in AI, like, you know, many of them were discussed by Peter with the Magnificent Seven, will probably be the ones that keep leading. And on the other hand, it's combining things. Like I was at a Samsung event two weeks ago and they launched their new phone. And it had a lot of really cool features like AI-based search, uh, real-time translation. So if you make a phone call to someone in China, I could speak Dutch and they would hear me in Chinese and vice versa. And it's all on the phone. I mean, in, you have automated Photoshop on the phone. So I think that, you know, people will not get all these separate AI-based gadgets. I think the real boom and the real growth will be where people can access AI tools either in an invisible way or in a more centralized way or in the products you already use, like your smartphone or Microsoft Office that gets an upgrade. But I don't see a lot of potential for all these crazy gadgets that are, you know, popping out like mushrooms everywhere. Let me challenge you there, uh, because one of the things I like about CES is that it's a show. It's just a lot of crazy ideas. There's a lot of marketing, a lot of buzz. Mm -hmm. But it is some sort of an experiment where people are trying like hell to see if there might be a new big category out there. And I think when our phones became smartphones, uh, 
we really didn't know what would be the killer idea or the avenue. And I, I, I probably think that it's the visual aspect that really made all the difference. I mean, all of a sudden, the fact that we have cameras in our phones that are better than ever before gave that a completely new dimension. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe with AI, we could do something you know similar, and we might see an opportunity for a new form factor. And I think, I think you're right. The rabbit isn't the final product. I mean, the humane.ai clip yeah. that you put on your shirt isn't there yet either. Mm-hmm. But I do believe, I wouldn't be surprised if, if in this decade, we're going to find a new form factor, you know, next to our phones that might be something that is really sticky. So I wouldn't rule that out. And I think that's where you need the craziness of CES to just Throw out ideas, yeah. and and I think the more stupid ideas, the better it is we are trying to understand where we don't want to go. But I think stupid mm-hmm. ideas are essential to make progress. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Peter. I mean, we talked about Timu last time, yeah. and it's full of stupid ideas. And they're selling like crazy simply because somebody, some niche market needs it. You were talking about this stroller. Actually, I've read that article as well, and, and I saw that it's very useful for young parents to just rock the baby because they have the feeling that they're traveling. That doesn't mean they have to actually go next to it or actually go anywhere, but you don't need to take care of the baby anymore because they feel that they're actually moving constantly. Some of these gadgets could actually get you to be used in certain industries that could be very interesting that we don't think about. It again boils back down to human creativity that at some point may lead to foolish ideas, but uh, eventually may lead uh, to something very useful that will help us to to have these super qualities as humans. Yeah. I think we're going to round off here. We talked a lot lot of things, so I I hope everyone enjoyed it. I want to thank uh, Peter and Pascal, of course, but also Alke for being here in our show uh, for the first time as a guest. We really enjoyed your wisdom and all the great insights that you shared with us. I'm sure our audience will be excited as well. To everyone, thank you for listening. We're going to be back in about four weeks with a new episode of Radar. In the meantime, please talk about this podcast with one of your colleagues, share the link, give us a review, and we appreciate you listening to our conversation. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com, to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.